Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Our guest today, Kelly Curry, was involved in a serious car accident in 1984 when she was just 18. As a result, she endured over 40 surgeries on her way to repairing the damage. Then, in 1998, she fell from a ladder, suffering a work accident that left her paralyzed. A doctor proposed a radical surgery, a cage around her lower spine. During the surgery, the anesthesia failed, and she remained sensitive to the every slice of the surgeon's knife, unbearable pain, until she had a near-death experience. There she was filled with unconditional love, but she was terrified to hear she had to go back to her body. When she refused, she was shown a much bigger picture of her life to come. Soon after she recovered, her relationships, her work, and the way she lived changed. Through a series of divine synchronicities, Kelly learned how to paint and how to help others as well. When Hurricane Katrina hit, she felt called to New Orleans, where she spent 10 years. Following that, she spent four years in the jungles of Costa Rica. Subsequently, Kelly returned to her roots in upstate New York, where she has now her own gallery and studio. So, Kelly... Let's start with when your car was T-boned back in 1984. When did you first realize the extent of the damage it had caused? My first recollection of what had taken place is that I'm in an ambulance headed to the hospital. And when I got there, they x-rayed me uh, from stem to stern and told me at that time I had a broken neck, um, a, uh, a possible broken lower back, and a broken hip on the right side. Uh, along with the fact that my head had been launched and it was caught in the uh, windshield. So oh. the way that I was kind of folded in, they had to use the jaws of life. So I was a, a hurting unit from the top to the bottom. So how much that, later was it that they came up with this idea of doing more, a further surgery, the cage they described? That started the surgeries. And so the surgeries start taking place over a period of years from 1984 until the big one, which is in 1998. So in that 14-year period, that's when I went through all of the different operations that I had. And But the last part of it um, was that in 1998, I was working, uh, I was on a ladder, and uh, we had a very big uh, warehouse. And so we would stack the lighter boxes, lighter components up on the top shelves and the bigger, heavier ones towards the bottom. And I kind of knew I'd been working there. I had set up the um, the warehouses. So I knew what should be up there. And when I climbed up the ladder, a lot of times we were rushing yeah. and I climbed up the ladder to grab a small box, which should have had about a five pound motor in it. And, you know, that's a one hand thing I could take down. And I knew that, but on this particular day, I grabbed the box and when I pulled it off, there was something in there that was the same size, but it literally weighed like 20, 25 pounds. Oh. And the momentum of that weight coming off the shelf threw my balance off. And I tried to, you know, bobble because it was a very expensive part. And I tried to bobble it. And by doing that, I lost my grip completely and ended up falling off the ladder. Now, I wasn't really high on the ladder at that time. I was maybe, you know, six or eight feet off the ground. But that fall down, that was what dusted what was bad in the bottom of my back, which was two discs that had been compressed from the accident and that they were bulging terribly, which mm. was a very painful thing to live with. Yes. But in that moment when I fell, it burst the sacks and it mm. burst those bulges. And when it did, it, it literally created um, a pain that I've never felt to, from that day forward. And in that pain, I could not move my lower end. I could not feel my toes or move my legs, but they were in a tremendous amount of pain, like a tremendous amount of pain. Wow. And I ended up going to um, the hospital the same day 
And they put me in and started running tests because they didn't know what had happened. And so through those tests, they said, oh, those discs blew out. And now we have a problem because there's a compression like fracture up against the nerve. And they believed that that was what was causing me to not have the ability uh, to feel and use my lower extremity. Mm-hmm. And of course, they had me medicated pretty badly. And I'd already been through a whole bunch of surgeries. So when I was laying there, I was kind of over everything that was going on in my life. It That wasn't the only part that was painful. There was a lot of other things attached to that. But I I didn't care. Like I had this, like, I don't give a crap anymore. You know, it just seems like it's nonstop. And, but they had me medicated. So I wasn't feeling that pain at that time. They knew my back was really bad, but a new doctor had just shown up from Johns Hopkins and he had, uh, his specialty was back surgery. He had come up with a radical surgery for people like me who had had these types of fracture, compression fractures that were up against the nerves. And what he would do was go through the front and the back in the same surgery and create a a cage, remove what had been broken and was fragmented, replace that with donor bone. And, but this cage would never come out. This was going to be something that was going to be steady. And the way that they described it was our spine is like a chain on a bicycle. And for me, I would have a couple of links stuck together. So I was going to lose some mobility but it would hold that chain together. So I agreed to it. And I I do remember when I went under for surgery, I remember thinking to myself, and I was not, not a religious person in any sense of the form before this moment, but I remember thinking to myself that I need to believe that this man is the man who can fix me. Like I, I, I knew that my faith needed to be placed in this, that this person could do it. And, um, mm-hmm. and I, I remember feeling that before I went in for the surgery. So the surgery was over 15 hours. That's, you know, 15.5 hours for the surgery, but they had explained it to me and, and uh, you know, that they were going through both sides. Now, I don't think that I understood where they were going to cut first because I don't remember them telling me that, but uh, you know, I go in for the surgery and now I'm waking up from surgery and I realize that everything is much different than any of the other surgeries that I had been to, you know, through prior to this. And one of the things that stuck out in my mind was that prior surgeries, when I came into the recovery room, they would be saying my name, Callie, Callie, clapping their hands, wake up, come out of it, come on, open your eyes, you know. And after a lot of surgeries, I hated that part. Like, I really hated that part because I felt like it was like somebody grabbing you and shaking you to come out of something. And I was just like, God, why won't they just let me wake up on my own, you know? <laughs> and so on this particular day, nobody was saying my name. I, I, was, I was awake. I was aware. I could feel the air blowing against me. I, I, could, I could sense the room around me, but my eyes were closed. I felt like I was kind of in a, a bit of a, a, a trance or something. And, um, but I was, I was very aware that no one was yelling at me to wake up. And I was really, really, really happy about that. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful. And so now, you know, once I've kind of gotten a little more um, clear, I start kind of noticing what's happening in the room through my ears, you know, listening to what's happening, because I didn't want them to know I was awake. You know, I didn't want them to yell my name. So I was kind of like, well, I'll just kind of pretend to lay here and be still and quiet and now I'm assessing myself. I'm assessing whether or not this surgery has been, you know, a good one because I'm trying to feel for my bottom, trying to feel for my legs and my feet. And when this goes going on, this is when I start hearing the people in the room, doctors and nurses, and they're talking about the tattoos on my body. And at this point, what brought my attention is they're talking about one that's on my lower leg. And I said to myself, okay, they're talking about my tattoos, you know? So there's a, a little bit of like, you know, oh, they've noticed my tattoos, but I'm, I'm laying there thinking they don't know I'm awake. Mm. And so now they're talking about my tattoos as they go up my leg because they're all connected. Oh, look, this one's connected to, oh, look, there's a light. Oh, look, there's a butterfly. And as they were talking about that, they were getting closer and closer to my, my rear end area, which I knew that that wasn't okay. I knew that they weren't supposed to be talking about a patient like that. And so now I'm getting angry because I'm thinking to myself, you're talking about stuff towards my private areas and I'm awake. Now I want to go say something. Now I want to say, hey, guys, you know, that's not appropriate. 
Mm-hmm. And when I went to go say something, I did not have a voice. So now I'm confused. And I'm thinking to myself, why am I not able to talk? Why am I not able to communicate with these people? And I'm thinking to myself, what has happened? Because, you know, there's just so much happening. There's there's people talking about me. There's me trying to assess myself. There's me knowing I'm awake, me thinking I'm out of surgery, but now I have no voice. So now I'm putting my attention to why I'm not able to communicate with these people and tell them this. Now, we're not to the out-of-body part of this yet, but I'm wondering... Have you thought about it possibly being a consciousness that is related to out of body? In other words, maybe the body was sedated, but your soul was conscious and also, of course, very aware of the pain that you go through, which you're about to describe. Do you suppose that it was a spiritual condition that you were experiencing? I'll be honest. I'm just learning that there's other people who had this. (laughs) I I am so new to this, like literally in the last three months, I found out that there's a whole entire society of human beings who've been through this. And so I don't know enough of the lingo or I don't know enough read of other people's experiences to maybe put this together. I will say that at that time, I felt like I was completely wide awake um, because I could feel everything because I remember smells in the room, I can remember the air blowing against my face or my skin, knowing if I felt cold. So Mm -hmm. I I did feel like I was awake. I, you know, at that moment, I really uh, was aware of my surroundings. So that I would, I would, I don't know if I could answer that as a spiritual experience, having so many other senses that were online. Right. Well, go ahead and tell us what happened next. It's pretty horrifying. Yeah, uh, very horrifying. So um, and the next moment, I hear a familiar sound, which is all of the instruments hitting the, the the tin plate. So, you know, I would remember that before every operation I had been through, the last thing I pretty much heard was them getting their utensils ready. And it always made a sound as they were unwrapping them. And you'd hear them kind of like, it was as if you were taking silverware and sticking it in your drawer all at one time in a metal drawer. It just kind of made that clattering sound. And I found that to be a relaxing sound because I knew that that sound was usually the last sound I heard before I was out. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, I said, oh, I haven't gone out yet. I haven't had any surgery yet. So therefore, um, that's why I'm hearing that sound. So I calmed down a little bit because I thought five, four, three, two, one, I would be gone. But five, four, three, two, one, I wasn't gone. And, and now I'm, you know, there's so many emotions running through my system because I have the emotion of confusion, the emotion of anger that they were talking about me in a way that I thought was inappropriate. Um, You know, so, so these were happening and now I have another emotion going on, which is I should be going out soon anyways. And none of this will matter. I just, I just need to go to sleep. You know, I just, I don't want to know nothing. (laughs) And so now after I feel that I, I can feel them putting um, like papers on me. Like I could tell that they were placing like paper, like a thin paper over my body. Mm-hmm. And I was confused because I was like, well, why are they doing that? I don't ever remember feeling that sensation. But then I felt them swab my stomach. The swab was wet and it was cold. And I could I could hear them, you know, touching the utensils, grabbing the utensil to like, I could, I could, was very aware that that, you know, this thing that they were using to swab me, which was very wet and cold. And when they put it on my stomach, this is when I panicked. This is when everything went kaflooey inside of me because I knew that I was seconds from feeling a a scalpel of some sort because they were getting me ready to do it. And this is when inside I'm like, I'm awake, I'm awake. And and I was really struggling trying to figure out how do I get my, my voice to work? How do I get this to happen? And so at that moment, I started to tell myself, okay, brain to the ear, ear to the neck, neck to the shoulder, shoulder to the arm, arm to the, and I was trying to draw a line to get to my fingers so that I could move them so that they would know I was awake. Mm. And to this day, I feel like that might've happened because um, I was screaming inside to, to myself, trying to get myself to move, sit up, move, do something. And, but at the same time, the swabbing is going on. And then I feel the scalpel. And when the scalpel cuts into my stomach, I feel that I feel like because the, the metal was cold and I felt it as soon as it touched me. But I felt like that paper cut feeling of like you felt the motion of it before the actual pain hits. 
Yeah. Like I could, I knew something had been dragged across my stomach, but then all of a sudden my whole body is just filled with the pain because now they're still in there and they're still doing it. So it's this nine inch cut that's going all the way down from the top of my stomach to my pelvic bone. And, and I felt as they cut through the last of the, the tendon of my, you know, the muscle that's around your stomach, cause that goes all the way around to your back. And when they cut through that on my stomach, it went like this, boom. And it just, it, there was such a reaction, a rubber band type reaction of my, my uh, stomach muscles coming to my spine. Mm. And that was a horribly, horribly painful in my body. Now there's a screaming, crying going on because I'm awake and I'm feeling all this. And then I felt the hand go into my stomach. I could feel that really uh, uh, very vividly. And I know that they touched something inside of me because in that moment was like, that was the last of the energy I had in the, the, the pain was just so momentous and I'm, not there. Like everything stops. It stops dead. There's no pain. It's not like I had earmuffs on, but it was weird because I was disconnected from what was going on below me. And now I am, I can see my body. So I, I say I'm above because I had a whole view of the room. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I was above or to the side, but I had the whole view of the room and I could see my body laying there. I could see something from, I don't know which organ, but I could see an organ that was on on my stomach. And I, I knew that that's what I felt happening. And I'm looking at everything. And this is when I say to myself, Oh my God, they killed me. <laughs> you know, mm. I, I, I just died. <laughs> and I'm looking at my body and I'm kind of listening to all the stuff that's going on as they're kind of moving around very quickly, tending to me. And in that moment, and I, you know, in this realization, I'm dead. I have never felt the happiness I felt in that moment. I was so happy that this whole thing was over with. The pain is over with and the things I'm going through in life are over with. And these experiences that I've been nonstop having for decades, it's done, it's over with. And I was so filled with joy. And and at the same time, I am now being kind of filled with this unconditional divine love that I had never felt before. And so there's a double kind of high going on, one in which I'm very happy to be gone. And then one in which I'm having a sensation of love that I've never felt before. And in those two things, I was more than happy to leave. I was more than happy to be done with the life, more than happy to be out of the body, more than happy to go home, to go someplace else other than where I'd been. And um, I, this is when I hear a voice that tells me I'm going to need to go back. And I said, oh, no, I, you know, <laughs> I, I wasn't afraid of the voice. I didn't even question it, really. I, I don't even maybe at that moment, I thought it was my inner me talking to me. But I was like, oh, no, absolutely not. I'm not going back. You know, there's nothing I want to go back for. I, and I, I feel bad saying that because I had children. But but honestly, there was so much pain in my life. And I had been in so much physical pain for so long that I, I didn't want to go back. Were you still in the room with your body when you heard I, the voice? Yes, I was still in the room. I was still kind of observing what was happening while assessing the difference that I felt in myself. Mm. And the voice comes to me while I'm there and seeing everything in real time. And that's when the voice was like, you need to go back. That's why I said I thought it was maybe me telling me I needed to go back. You know, like I was like, no, 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 absolutely not. I'm not going back. And and then the voice came in a little stronger and was like, no, you're, you need to go back. And I said, no, absolutely not. You know, uh, the world is horrible and, and people are nasty and, and you can't get you can't get ahead of anything. And, you, you know, I just I, I was just so filled with anger about the life that I was living. And so so I think that they knew then or that energy knew at that moment, OK, we got a problem. We got <laughs> we got to run away. And um, and this is when things take a bigger change, uh, change to something else altogether in which. Uh, I'm removed from that. So it's it's not like I was pulled out. I did not see a light. But what happened is like a fog comes in and takes over everything. And in that fog, I felt like I was not in that same place anymore. Like I did not feel like I was in a fog in the hospital or in that room. The fog came around and changed me to like some other place. And the fog stays with me. The fog never changes into a picture of anything. I don't see any landscape. I didn't see anything like that. It was just this like really beautiful, like 
minty kind of a green color of like fog. And it it's not lit from any direction. It just has its own color, which seems to be very light and airy and comforting. And when I'm in this space, this is when the 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 voice that I'm hearing is much more tuned in, much more dialed in and says, you know, you, you, there's things that you need to do. You need to go back because, you know, what you came to do on earth that has not been done yet. And you need to go back in order to fulfill this. But I was argumentative still. And I said, well, there's nothing good down there. Why would I want to go back to do what, to, to experience more pain, to experience more of these, these, these roadblocks and hurdles that were in my life. And, and this is when um, I, I am now aware that there's more presence of there's like actual presence around me. Now, before that, there was just a voice. Now I feel presence around me. And mm. when I'm looking to the fog, I see coming out of the fog, not walking towards me, just kind of like appearing out of the fog is these outlines of what look like to be human bodies. They're a much brighter blue, a very light blue. And uh, so I can't really stare at them. I definitely didn't see like a face with eyes or a nose or a mouth that could speak or hair or anything, just kind of a, an outline of what looks like a head and some shoulders and arms and a tall body of wood legs, but, but they're just a blue color. But mm -hmm. I know that they are real because I can feel the love emanating from them and filling me. And, and in that love that, that every single atom, every single Every little tiny thing that's in me felt that love. And I had never experienced that. So I felt healthy. I felt clear-headed. I felt connected to God in a way that I had never experienced. I, I, I felt I knew that there was a God at this moment because the love was just telling me about this omnipresent love that's filling the universe. And I was now back to being a part of that. And I did feel like I was home. I definitely felt like this is where I'm from. This place feels like something I know in my spirit. This is home. And and they felt that. They they like heard my thoughts. And they were like, well, it's it's not exactly home, but you know, the energy all comes back to its source. And this is where you are. You're back at the source with all of us. And so I'm still defiant. I, I realize that something great's going on, but I'm still defiant. And I'm like, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. I want to stay here. I want to stay with this love. I want this love to continue to be in me and stay with me. And I don't, I don't ever want to feel this disconnection of love that I felt down there. And so now this is when all of those kind of entities are like, okay, we're going to give you something that's going to help you. We're going to show you something. And in the next seen kind of like in front of me, but I'm, I'm sort of at the center. I don't see my body though. I'll be honest. I don't, I don't have like, I, I know it's me, but I, I can't say I can see my legs or anything like that, but sort of in front of me, I see a scene in front of my eyes and it was, they were like layers of spider webs. There was many layers, many layers, like a big sandwich, but I could tell which one was really important. I knew that one of those webs was me. And as I'm looking at the web, they showed me that, you know, this web is my web and the webs are all formed by the words that I speak. And as I'm looking at the web, I can see the times that I spoke good words and I can see the times that I spoke bad words. And in all cases, every single word created a web, a spider web, like a line. And in all those cases, if that word went from me to another human, then I would be able to see what what happened from that word that went into that human happened. So that was like, they were the next like level, like, mm -hmm. so I would say something beautiful. This person would hear that beautiful thing. They would repeat that beautiful thing. And that line would go out to the next person and the next person. And so I could see all these levels of spider webs in which one word from me had had all these different connections, but they were all, we were all connected through that word. On the other hand, on the crappy words that I was speaking, I also saw the same thing. And I saw that I had a lot more webs that I had created through my bad words or lies than I had through the good words or the decent things I had spoken in my life. And that was a heavy moment. 
because then I realized that I had been speaking not nice things and that I was creating that other people were believing what I was saying, or they were taking to heart what I was saying, and then they were repeating it, and it was causing more damage up the line. It was creating people to have false information and false feelings or false you know, understandings about things that weren't doing them any good. So my words actually were doing more harm than they were doing good. That was a very big lesson. This is like a life review often described by other people, but theirs is more visual. I think the web thing is very powerful. That description of how words work. Do you have any feeling that it was only spoken words where we do good or evil? Or what about stuff we put down on the internet or things that we write or things that we do and leave behind us that may either help or hurt someone? It literally starts from thinking. It's the thought that happens inside the head first that becomes the word on the outside. The word becomes manifest. It didn't matter what word we spoke. Like like the spider web didn't just contain the good words and the bad words. It contained every word. Every thought that was thought that became the word became that manifest uh, plane. And so it can be as simple as, you know, a passing thought you're having looking at a situation. All right. So judgment, very important. Lots of spider webs coming off of judgment. Mm. So it it starts right from the get go. So all that other stuff that happens after the word, whether it's been written or whether it's been on the Internet or whatever, it, it's going to carry that energy, whether or not it made it on the Internet or not. It was carrying that energy a thousand years ago when they were speaking it in the desert without that stuff. And those words still have spider webs that are continuing because people are still talking about that. They're right. still thinking about it or they have a connection to it. So the the, the webs themselves are innumerable. <laughs> I think somewhere in the Bible, Jesus says, it's not just if you commit adultery, it's even if you think about committing adultery, which is such an overwhelming thought. I mean, we're just born to sin in a situation like that. So we, my it, understanding about that is, and from this experience, is that that is what repentance is all about. Yes, we can think those things and we can make them happen. But the moment that we realize that what we're thinking and acting on is actually causing ourselves harm and we stop, you have now repented. You have now changed that. Yes. And there is no price to pay. There's no, there's no, there, there was no hell. There's no, there's no, you know, list of you did all this stuff wrong. It doesn't work like that. It's, we're already creating the things that happen to us through those words. So our words are creating our reality because we are creators. We have the ability to create. That's why the word, that's why the Bible says in the beginning, there was the word. And I didn't know any of this. I didn't read the Bible till after this experience. But as I was reading the things, some of the, not everything, but some of the things that I was reading, I was like, okay, I understand that, you know, it was kind of like another deeper level of, of what they had shown me. And this is what's been going on with me ever since 1998. I'm still in that space in which I will read something or I will delve into something and I will see the crisscross and understand something they showed me on a deeper level. It keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper as I look farther and farther into it. Your communication with these beings was by thought, wasn't it? Yes. So there's the power of thinking a word or thinking a thought that can be either good or bad. Exactly. Because it's available to all those who are telepathic and can read those things. And that's everyone on the other side. And so my life has been a complete, since that moment to where I am right now, my life passion is self-control, you know, self-discipline. And what am I self-disciplining? My thoughts. It does take work. We are humans and we have a lot of things. Somebody cuts you off and all of a sudden you're like that. Ugh. You have to learn to catch yourself in that moment and be like, no, that is also a person of God. This is also my brother or my sister. And so when I am saying or thinking that thing about that person, I'm only giving it back to myself. It's in my web. So, you know, this is, it's a powerful tool and some people understand it. I've, you know, I've, I've had a lot of time to talk to different people in different places over the last 20 something years. And some people grasp that some people feel it inside their soul. And they know when they hear that, they're like, you know what? I knew that. I knew that. 
I just felt that, you know, and some people are like, that's a bunch of crap. You know, we're human beings and <laughs> we're only here for one deal and we die and it doesn't matter and nothing happens to us. And I'm like, oh, absolutely not. We are in a human form, but we are in an imperfect human form. Well, let me rephrase that. We are perfect in God's eyes. He made us perfectly in his image. It's the inner will that we have that's not perfect. And so self-discipline and self-control in your thoughts lead you to that perfection. And when we have that ability to have that self-control over that thinking and those thoughts and our words, then we get closer and closer and closer to that divine connection to God in which we become a creator just like God. Now, go back for a moment to where you were when you were learning this. The environment of love that you were in makes it a whole lot easier to think good thoughts, have good feelings, and radiate love. It's more of a struggle here for sure, isn't it? Well, it is, you know, because when you're in pain, you're not radiating love, you're radiating pain. When you're mad, you're not radiating love, you're radiating anger. And, you know, and we're talking about the emotional body here. And so, you know, those, those, those things that happen that keep us from that, it's very hard to find, and I have not found it to this day, that divine encompassing unconditional love. I will say that my whole thing in life is to be that person. It It is to, 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 to keep working on this unconditional love that I felt to try to, to, to even for a moment, give it to anyone that's here on this planet, even if it's just in my presence. It doesn't have to be in my word. Sometimes it's in the hug. But if I don't do my work, if I don't do my meditation and keep my connection open, keep remembering about the words, you know, making a daily effort to be a, a more self-disciplined and more self-controlled human being uh, or or spiritual entity upon this planet, then um, then I move farther away from that. Mm-hmm. And, and it takes me some time to meditate to really feel that encompassing unconditional love because it's it's not easy in our plane. It's just, it's not easy to recreate. You've taken a lot more of a lesson. I wonder if it was related to the uh, situation where your body was feeling such an intense pain from this, I mean, no anesthesia that was working for you. I mean, to have implanted the power of this cobweb vision in the life that you've been living since then, because many people go through uh, near-death experiences and have a, a life review, and they come back and they say, well, I, I learned a lot from it. But I think from what you've said that you learned a lot more from your life review than most people. Well, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Are you? So no, there you are. I, I wanted are, to say that in that experience, once you come back from that, right, if you try to deny or if you try to kind of close that off, you actually kind of hurt yourself more. Because you've been opened up to a point that, you know, spirit's trying to kind of like give you a hand, right? Spirit says, okay, you created a bridge or whatever through this situation. And they're coming to meet you because they want you to know there's more to life. And I would say I was definitely a human being who was praying. What is there more than this? You know, that was something that I was going through before that event ever happened. I was, you know, didn't I didn't believe in God, but I was asking, is there more to life than this, than just working every day in the grind? And, you know, so when they show me that there was more to life than that, and I came back from that situation, if you want to ignore that, that's to your own folly. Because now you have something in the back of your head that tells you there's more. And if if you're not embracing that or looking for that, then I, and, and this is my own personal opinion from my experiences, I think that the spiritual lessons get a little bit harder. Because they're like, okay, you're already open and understanding to something. And 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 if you want to act like that doesn't exist, then these other lessons you're learning are kind of a little, a little harder. <laughs> you know, but um, if you embrace it and you're, you know, you're looking at that and you're saying, okay, I see that, or I, I see that in myself. I mean, this is all a lot of self-work here because that's basically what they show you. They show you your words and how important and what, how much more intimate can you be than the things you are thinking. That's really intimate. And so if you know that the spiritual world does not judge you for what you're thinking, because we have free will, we have the ability to think and do whatever we want. That's what this place is for. But if now you realize how much potency those things have, and now you want to act like that doesn't have any potency, it it's, uh, it, it changes. And I, I did that. I, I tried to block it out and act like it didn't happen because 
the people that I was speaking to after my near death experience didn't believe me and called me crazy and stuff. So I actually tried to take it out of my mind. I tried to turn it off. I tried to, you know, forget about it. And in, and I got double whammied. So I was like, <laughs> okay, well, that's not the, that's not the path. <laughs> <laughs> well, they gave it to you as a job to do, didn't they? They said I had work to do and I've been working pretty hard since yeah. I came back from that. <laughs> do you remember anything else from the other side? I remember my lesson. I remember what the, they told me and showed me. I remember the love. I remember how loved I felt, how pure I felt, how clean I felt. I remember how forgiven I felt for all the things that I thought, you know, I was carrying a pretty big bag of stuff. I hadn't been uh, doing the right things. I hadn't been giving the right words to the people I loved the most. And, you know, in seeing all that, there was a level of, of sadness for myself. There was like a, like a, like my higher self was, and, you know, kind of hugging my human self and saying, we know it's been hard and we know that you're going through it and we love you, you know, and we're going to be here. We're here no matter what you, you didn't know we were here, but we're here and we're not going anywhere and so all of that was kind of downloaded into me along with a whole bunch of other stuff. Now, there was a whole host of other understandings about how to be closer to God, how to be more spiritual, how to get into line with that energy. Like all of that had been downloaded too, but there was so much of it. And, and there wasn't a very long period after that in which those things started to slip from me. The ones that stayed, the lesson that stayed obviously was about the words because that made the most impact because yes. I saw how it directly related to me. You know, those were my words. Those were my thoughts. Um, but, you know, coming through that situation, I could not contain all of what was given to me. It just was so big and there was no one to talk to. And if I tried to talk to people about it, it was so above their heads that they couldn't connect with me on any level to be like, Ooh, tell me more. That never happened. People ran from me. They were like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't want to know. So what they gave to me was enough strength to keep going. You said the operation lasted 15 hours. Do you feel like you were out of your body that long? Or at what point in the operation did you come back? When I woke up in, in recovery, and I had been out a long time, even though surgery was 15 and a half hours, the recovery was way longer. And I don't know why it was way longer, but I'm guessing at this point, because I've had a long time to think about this, they must have juiced me with that anesthesia, because I do think that I made some sort of something. I, mm. I still believe that somehow, whether I got to move the finger or I was because I was trying to open my eyes, you know, and so I think something happened that made them know, or maybe I made a sound, maybe when they put the knife in me because I was screaming in my head. Yeah. So, you know, in the in the moment that that knife went through me and then the moment where I'm now above my body, I really felt like that was death. Like I, I, I felt like I was dead. I felt like that was a death that I had died. I was happy for that death. And now coming back out of that, uh, I lost all fear of death. I've been home. I know exactly what's there and waiting for me. I know the love that is there and the acceptance that's there. And I know no matter how many times I screw up trying to do what I'm doing, I know I'm going to be okay. I know there's certain things I'll never do again. There are certain words I will never use. There are certain things I will never say. There are many actions I will never make because I know the importance of that. But even if I was to continue being that person and doing and saying all those things, I still would be going home to that place. But that, that death let me know that, you got nothing to lose. Let it fly, girl. Because if somebody does you bad or something happens to you in this lifetime, you're just going to go home. And home is a beautiful, absolutely wonderful place to be. So I'm not afraid of what that's going to bring. And it gives you a fearless feeling to go out and do things in life that I, I'm i just realizing is having an effect on people who are watching me do what I'm do, doing. You know, just following my dreams, just following my passions, believing that everything's going to work out, knowing that I'm blessed by God because I, I'm walking, 
I wasn't walking before that happened. I every day I get up and I walk and I go, this could have been so much worse. And it's wonderful. I'm, you know, 20 something years later and I and I can run down the road if I need to, you know. <laughs> and uh and there was a moment there where I thought I'd never walk again. So I haven't forgotten those beautiful things. And that gave me a fearless feeling that I know what it feels like for someone to put a knife in me and open me all the way up. Not to uh, encourage this kind of bad behavior, but it's your sense that whether you lived a new life with a new vision of how we're supposed to behave in this world, or if you just went back to your old self and spoke all the bad words that you were speaking in the past, that God would love you and take you home regardless. Absolutely. Now, I do think that, you know, if you believe in reincarnation, I do now after my experience, I didn't before that. But if you believe in reincarnation, if you want to turn your eyes from that and you want to turn your heart from that and you just want to go ahead and be whatever you want to be, yes, you're welcomed back in there. But I think that the part of that is, is you got to come back through here and you got to go through another situation in your life in which, you know, and maybe some of us only learn one little tiny piece at a time. And some of us learn a whole bunch in one of our lives. And so I think it just, it's, it's God loving his children as if we love our own children. We, we say, well, look, try this thing. Maybe it'll work for you, you know, and we give them all this love and, and energy because we really want to see him succeed. I don't think that God's love is any different. He really wants us to succeed. And so if it, this body and in these circumstances and I, and I'm taking to it and I'm listening and I'm aware, then, you know, maybe my, my wheel, my journey on the wheel will stop if I've, you know, learned how to connect to this love and keep it in my heart at all times. And maybe I'll come back in my next life and be a, a, a bigger lover of people or or a sharer of different types of information. Um, and if I wasn't going to do anything about it and just ignore it like it never happened and not do any changes at all, then maybe I come back and I, I go through it again. Maybe I go through the same experiences, hoping that there'll be some sort of a a situation that will bring me to that understanding. So we are loved unconditionally. We are all of us. Every single one of us is loved. And I know this bothers some people because they want to think that there's a retribution for the things we do. But God gave us, or the, the universe, or the, the, the creator gave us free will. And the free will is this. On this planet, we can literally do anything we want to do because the universe has put every single thing we can think of, imagine, or manifest in this realm. So we can do anything that we want to do. The only thing that it affects is us. It affects our growth. It affects our, you, you're, you think you're doing something to somebody else, but you're not, you're doing it to yourself. You're putting yourself into a position to have to deal with whatever it is you put out there. And some people don't see that happening in life. They don't see that all the crap they're going through might have to do with the way they treat others or what they say to others. They don't see the connection in that. They think that it's happening to them. They don't think that they're the progenerator of that particular thing. But we are, and our words are the manifest. Right. And yet when you came back, things weren't perfect. People didn't believe you. And I guess your husband couldn't put up with your new personhood. Nobody. Nobody in my family. The people who were the happiest about my change was my children. Everybody else looked at me like I had three heads that I had uh, mental illness. I had been called crazy. I'd been called all kinds of names because my changes were immediate, especially knowing about my words. I came back immediately from the moment I woke up in the recovery room. I started thinking about everything that I was saying before I said it. The next thing was um, my love and my heart was bigger. All right. So I, my, the love that I came back with that feeling of unconditional love lasted me a, a good long time, maybe a year and a half or so in which I felt it emanating from me. And I think that that created almost like a, maybe like a vibration that was off to the people who knew me because I was so filled with love. And prior to that, I was not filled with love. I was filled with anger and I was filled with uh, greed and I was filled with selfishness. And all of a sudden now I'm giving things away and I'm, you know, inviting people who have no home into my house and, you know, everything <laughs> started to change. So the people around me were like, what happened to you? I wasn't drinking anymore. I had stopped doing drugs. I was doing cocaine before that. I stopped doing that. 
So the things that I had in common threads with people who are around me, and sometimes we don't even realize what those common threads are, you know, drinking and drugs was a part of my marriage. And so with me not doing that, with me having love in my heart, and then with me trying to explain to him <laughs> about being responsible for his thoughts, he was like, you know what, I'm out. I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't know what happened to you. He called me a Jesus freak. And that hadn't even occurred to me whether, you know, Jesus was involved or not. But yeah, he took to that really badly. Like he treated me as if, as if I was showering him with glitter every day. And glitter was, you know, his kryptonite. It just was not in his realm of where he wanted to be. So I lost that. I lost my marriage. My family backed off from me and I had the power to see things, you know, as far as like somebody's actions or I knew their words, right? So now mm -hmm. I know when they're speaking, what they're thinking. And I knew what kind of spider web they were making. And so I would stop them because I didn't want to, I didn't want that to be a part of my spider web. So I would say, Hey, you know what? I know it's about to come out right now and I don't want to go there. I don't want to do this. Maybe we should take a break. Maybe I should leave or you leave or, you know, something like, and nobody liked that. Nobody liked that I would stop them or cut them off in the middle of doing that. But I knew that for my own self, that that wasn't going to be a part of my world anymore. And so, you know, just not being into the same things everybody else was into. I lost everybody. I lost friends of a decade or more. I lost my marriage of over a decade. And then I ended up losing everything else. Lost the houses, lost the cars, lost the motorcycles. It just little by little by little, it just all started disappearing from my life. Wow. Now, when you told the doctors that you'd felt the pain of the operation all the way through, they hired psychiatrists to talk to you? I don't know if they hired them or if they were part of the hospital situation, they sent them to me. And so, you know, I had come out of recovery and went into my own personal room. And, and within an hour, there was somebody there and telling me that they were a, a psychologist and that they wanted to write down what, because um, I was, from the moment I woke up after that surgery, when I was in recovery, when I woke up, woke up, they were saying my name when I came out of it that, you know, Kelly, come on, let's go. Um, my mom and my sister-in-law were there. I didn't know they were there because my eyes weren't open yet. But as I came out of that fog from the whole surgery, the first thing I said was I was awake and I, I know I yelled it cryingly with a hoarse voice and my mother and my sister-in-law were taken aback and they kind of looked at me and they go, what do you mean you were awake? I'm like, I was awake. I felt the whole thing. They, they, they put the knife in me. I heard them. They were talking about my tattoos, you know? So I was just, blah, blah, blah. it was all coming out of me quickly. And so they dismissed me in that room. But when I got to the other room, my whole entire being was wrapped around this experience that I'd had. So I was in a, another space mentally and I wasn't really talkative you know, because now I'm trying to like, what just happened to me? And that's when they sent the first doctor in to talk to me about it. And that doctor was just basically like writing down, then what happened, you know, wasn't really talking to me. Then they sent another one, did the same kind of thing, wanted to hear. And there was some time in between there because I was in the hospital for a while. So, you know, like the first one came on the first day, maybe the next day I got another one and the next day, another one, then there was a break. And then, and then uh, another one came in. The last one that came that came into my room a, a couple more than a couple of times was a female psychiatrist or psychologist that had come, I believe, out of Boston. And whether or not she was in the area and they called her, or whether they made her come, I don't know any of that stuff. But she came in to talk to me about it, and she seemed more interested. She asked deeper questions about it. But in all cases. I kind of felt like after it all happened that the reason they kept sending me different people and kept asking me exactly what happened and they were writing it was because maybe they were trying to figure out whether I made it up or if my story was going to be the same. And that woman, her only question at the end of all of that was, so um, are you going to be okay? You know, and uh, by this time I'd had a few days and I was still in the space of love from my experience. And in that moment, I knew I was going to be better than okay. I knew I had died and that I had come back. That this new person, like being born, but as an adult. And actually over time after reading the Bible and, you know, because I started to kind of look for and search for anything that had to do with, you know, spirits and angels and everything, because I, I wanted to know. And I, I thought about that, you know, quite a bit, like, 
this new me that I am, this is what real, you know, rebirth is about, you know, because you used to, you, you, back in the seventies, remember everybody's car had a sticker on the back says I'm reborn, you know, and you'd be like, what the heck does that mean? You know, <laughs> but after that experience, I did feel reborn. Yeah. When you were talking to the psychiatrist, the psychologist, did you talk about the near death aspect of your story? Well, they didn't treat it like, or say the words near death. They didn't say any of that. What they said was, is that I didn't feel that, that, you know, that didn't happen. They told me that I was out the whole time, that nothing happened with the anesthesia, that everything went as planned. They, they think that I was hallucinating. They told me that I might've been hallucinating from the drugs they gave me. Um, and that they don't, you know, they don't know where that came from, but that I shouldn't pay it any attention. You didn't tell them though, that you'd left your body, that you were. No, no. I told them the whole thing. I told them about the spider webs and everything. Yeah. Oh, you did. Okay. What was their reaction to that part of the story? Did that diminish their belief that you'd not been anesthetized during the surgery? They just kept telling me the same thing. They just kept telling me that it didn't happen. That was their line that, you know, they didn't believe that anything esoteric had happened to me. They didn't believe that some other anomaly had happened. They believed that, that I had been affected somehow with the medicines and it made me hallucinate. The last, I don't know, psychiatrist, psychologist, the woman that you felt was at least marginally sympathetic to you, what was her reaction to the NDE part of the story? Did she uh, give it any credence? No, she thought it was a fantastic story. But that, you know, her her position was with the rest of the doctors and that, you know, this was some sort of a hallucination and they didn't have an explanation for it. Then I asked her, how can I remember the words they spoke? How can I remember the things they were talking about? Especially I can tell you exactly what they were talking about with my tattoos. I can tell you exactly what happened after the thing. I remember hearing this. I remember hearing that. And, you know, I don't know. This is in 1984 or I'm sorry, 1998. I don't know if they were recording in in uh, operating rooms at that time or not. But I do remember saying, don't you guys have something recorded? Like, don't you have, can't, isn't there something to back up what I'm saying? But they poo-pooed me on that. Hmm. Uh, Yes, because it would have been very embarrassing if they'd been talking about your tattoos and it was being recorded. I'll bet that's a recording that never made it to the files. Anyway, yeah, I mean, without saying, <laughs> without saying a dirty word, I mean, they were literally talking about my rear end. You know, like where they shouldn't be talking about my rear end. And had I not had that particular tattoo there, you know, (laughs) so I was incensed at that, that they treated my body like that while I was under. And, you know, that was the part that actually bothered me the most because I felt like, how could they get away with that? That was really immature. That bothered me a lot, but they, they poo pooed that they told me, Oh Mm. no, that's, you know, you just imagined it. it. It was, you know, something brought on by the medicine and, we don't have time to tell the whole of your story after the operation, but I'd love to jump to the story about Charlie, the saw, the artwork, and how you came to become an artist yourself. Of course, this has had a major impact. The whole entire thing, nothing was the same. None of my relationships at work were the same. Nothing was the same because my mind had been expanded to know that that there was more to me than what people thought there was. There was more to me than what I thought there was. And so... I felt more and more bold as time went by because I had these abilities, you know, and I kind of knew what people were thinking and what was going on. And I lost my fear of standing up for myself. I lost my fear for asking for what I wanted. I lost my fear for a thousand things. So I went to my boss at that time and asked what was, you know, going to be in my future. And I was basically told that there was nothing there for me that was going to be like going up a ladder or anything. And so I decided that this was not an environment that I could thrive in. And I decided I was going to leave this environment and that I, I knew I had unemployment coming in and I, I owned a part business and I sold out to the partner and I said, okay, I got enough time here to figure out what is for me. And, and so I think that's really the beginning of my spiritual journey of me looking for what's for me. And um, through a series of you know pretty wild events, uh, from talking to a friend and telling them that I'm I'm running out of money. I'm I'm at the end of my my period of when I had funds to live on, and I don't have my thing. You know what is my thing? You know I don't want to go back to these jobs that were I felt draining my soul and and didn't really bring out my my best qualities. And and um, so I was uh, given the name of a of, of a psychic, 
and through a friend. And I ended up going to that psychic. And I thought that I had wasted my money at that psychic because when she was reading for me, I there was nothing there that I thought was going to give me my my thing. But at the very end, she said to me, tell me about this man, Charles or Charlie. And, you know, and I said, I don't know anybody named Charles or Charlie. And she's like, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. I said, I had a dog named Charlie. She says, no, that's not it. <laughs> she said, this is an older man and he's going to be really, really important to you. And I can't believe you haven't met him yet. She goes, I just it's right here, you know, that you know him. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know him. So when I left there, I had the tape and, and I was, I was upset that I had spent the money and I didn't get my answer. And I went home. And at that time, my husband and I were divorced, but he knew every, you know, we'd been together almost 20 years. So he, he was the guy who had all the names in his head. And I called him and he was living over uh, across the country. And I said, Hey, listen, you know, I went to a psychic trying to figure these things out. And I said, you know, do we know a Chuck or a Charlie? And he hesitated for a few minutes. He goes, Kelly, that saw. Well, I had a big old stagecoach hotel for a house. It was from the 1800s and I had been redoing it, but it had these really high ceilings. And in the kitchen, it had these nine foot pocket doors. And when I'd first moved into the farm, I had put everything in the barns and I would bring the boxes in little by little, decorate the house. And so one day I was cleaning out the rest of the barn. Everything was done. But there was some, there was some you know, garbage left over from the people before I went to go grab a blanket that was on a table and and it fell to the ground. It was heavy and I unrolled it and there was a six foot two man handsaw and it had the most beautiful painting on it. And I, we tried looking for the people who owned it, called the people we bought that place for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the moral of the story there is no one ever claimed the saw. No one knows where it came from, but we really did try to find the owners. But uh, I ended up putting it in my kitchen up there, figuring someday someone would walk in there and say, that's my saw. It never happened. I still have the saw. So um, I called my ex and I said, hey, you know, who's Chuck or Charlie? And he says, Kelly, you've been looking at that saw in the kitchen for seven years. He goes, I think the guy that painted its name is Charlie Flagg. You should find him and take lessons. And I'm like, where am I going to find the guy? I don't know the guy. He goes, well, I think he's from um, the uh, the county over. Maybe you should just go and like randomly ask people and maybe they'll point you in the right direction. And so that day, same day I saw the psychic, the same day I call the ex, the same night I go to see the girlfriend that told me about the psychic and I take the tape and we're playing the tape and it gets to the part about Charles or Charlie and she stops the tape and she says, well, who do you think that is? And I said, well, you're not going to believe this. I said, but I called, you know, I called my ex and he thinks it's this guy named Charlie Flagg. Well, this girl and I had been friends for over a decade and she looked me in the eyes and said, Kelly, I know Charlie Flagg. He's a good friend of mine. I just got off the phone with him before you got here. And I was flabbergasted. I said, how do you know this guy? And she's like, oh, I met him, you know, a long time ago. And he's, I collect his art. She showed me some little things she had. I had no idea. So she's like, I just got off the phone with him. So she calls him back and says, you're not going to believe this. I'm sitting here with my friend and she went to the you know, psychic and the psychic said she's going to meet some guy named Charlie and she's going to paint and it was crazy. And this was, this was late. This was like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And so he came over because he didn't live far away. And uh, he was an older guy, you know, in his sixties and he had the, you know, the hair sticking out kind of wild and crazy and uh, had, you know, 10 day old stubble and, and paint on everything. His fingers were covered, his clothes were covered, his shoes were covered, his jeans were covered, everything was covered with paint. And he sat there while I told him the whole story, the whole thing about going there. And he listened to me, but he didn't really look at me. And the whole time he was sitting there, he was rolling a doobie. And I get done telling the story and I'm all like, you know, what's he going to say? And uh, he he lights the joint really calm and cool and collective. And he takes a big hit. Must have held it for 10 minutes, blows it out into my (laughs) face. And he says, so kid, you want to paint? And I said, yes, sir. I think I do. And he laid it on the line that he didn't need a partner and I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And I'm not going to do anything else. And in the back of my mind, as that was happening, I said to myself, you know, this might just work because I'm a stubborn Irish girl and I kind of need someone to make boundaries like that. And so inside I kind of giggled and he said, tomorrow morning, eight o'clock, you'd be at my house. And uh, that was the beginning of the end. I spent an, a year and a half under his tutelage and I started getting commissions on my own. And uh, we had a little kind of, falling out because his customers were calling on me. I did not take those jobs. I knew Mm -hmm. that what he gave me was freedom. I knew that 
during the time period that we were together that this was going to set me free. And so I didn't cross any lines. I didn't take any work out of his mouth. But at the end of it, I realized if I was going to really take off and do my thing, I needed to go someplace else. And, um, and I moved to Florida and uh, said, well, I'm going to be a starving artist in Florida, but uh, God had other things in mind for me. And he's just <laughs> been sending me to the right places at the right time with the right people from that moment. And I've learned how to fly with my wings wide open. Your time in Costa Rica sounds uh, really wonderful. Costa Rica was a great lesson for me. I never had felt closer to God than I did in the jungle because you are devoid of everything. You do not have TVs and you can't get internet at most places. And so talk about being off the grid and being off the grid. uh, You start sleeping a normal schedule. You um, eat well in the jungle. So there's not a lot of food things to choose from. There's no fast food, obviously there's no pizza. There's no burgers. There's, you know, you're eating very locally grown, you know, food and it's very simple. And so you're eating well and you're, you're, you're drinking, you know, only water, you're, um, you know, swimming in the ocean for your showers and you're sleeping, you know, to the rhythm of the, the universe and, and things there. Uh, I definitely was able to channel very clearly there. Um, I started journaling deeper. I learned a lot about myself there. I, I did find things that were holding me back because I was wondering why I wasn't making more of a spiritual advancement after what I had experienced. And I was really trying, but there was a lot of unresolved stuff in me. And that unresolved stuff is still thoughts. And so those thoughts that were still kind of alive in me were creating kind of blockages as I was going along in my life. I was kind of recircling around certain things that were repeating. But there I was able to really um, kind of get a very clear vision of that. And um, I had a lot of visions there and uh, did a lot of writings there. And I also learned a whole new bunch of techniques with my art from meeting other like indigenous type artists. And so the time in Costa Rica was a very, I would call it a monk type of experience in which I was able to kind of be out of the world, in the world, but go an extra layer deeper, which is kind of why I think I'm here right now. Tell us about your art and what you're doing now. Obviously, my favorite thing that came out of this is that, you know, the art came from this experience. I was not an artist before this happened. I didn't even pick up a paintbrush till I was 36. So things happened to me during this experience that opened up that part and that that desire to paint and create and and bring beauty. And so art has become my way of trying to honor that divine love and that divine, that unconditional love that I felt. Because I feel like when I paint something big and it's beautiful and people look at it, if they get that feeling for a moment, you know, like, oh my God, look at that. Then to me, that's about as close as you can get to kind of that feeling I had. And that's that's really why I do the art that I do. And when I first started, I did a lot of spiritual art. Now, spiritual art is is my favorite thing to do, but that's not where my bread and butter comes from. My bread and butter comes from being able to sit down with my clients. And when they're telling me something that they want to see, I'm able to form a vision of it in my head. And it's their vision. Like, I know it's their picture coming into me. And so every time, and knock on wood, uh, 100% of the time since I started, the end result is always the customer saying to me, that's exactly what I had in mind. And I don't think that there is a better feeling in the world than that. Mm -hmm. And uh, doing the big murals, I think um, actually the second part of that, doing big stuff is that I interact with the public a lot. So when I'm working on a mural, people will stop by and start random conversations. And I can't even tell you the amount of of conversations that are spiritually activated happen in those moments. So I took it that this is this job that I have with art or this this skill that I have with art is really kind of the way that the Lord picked for me in order to send me the people that need to hear something or need to talk about something. And I'm able to give them some sort of love or understanding, or sometimes it's just as much as telling them, look, we're all going home to the same place. You know, whatever you did at any moment, you can stop doing that at any moment, whatever has happened here, 
every single day that you get up, you can decide that that's the last time I'm doing that thing, whatever that thing is. That's your free will. And in that thing, you will be rewarded because the whole universe will come together to try to help you go in another direction. It's, but you've got to kind of connect to that. You've got to feel that love, you know? But um, sometimes people just need to hear that they're not going to be suffering more than they've already suffered in the life that they're living now. Is there a website where people can see some of the art you've done? Yes. My website is kellycurrymurals.com. That's uh, K-E-L-L-Y-C-U-R-R-Y-M-U-R-A-L-S.com. My sincere thanks to Kelly Curry for sharing the details of her extremely pain-filled life and the extremely liberating experience resulting from her NDE. If you'd like to hear this show again or any of our more than 500 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE Radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone, for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.